I've got a really exciting guest today who I've spent a lot of time talking to already. And some of you may know him well, but I'm guessing a lot of you don't because we have another show. It's called Cameras or Whatever, and it's really meant for professionals. This show is much more general. They're listening to now. It's for anybody interested in creating stuff like you're you're getting into photography, you're getting into video and you want to do better. But Cameron Whitman, who is on the other line right now. Hey, he is a professional photo editor over at Stocksy United, which is a really cool stock photo agency. We worked there together for a long time, like, you know, since the beginning of it. And I've, I've moved on from the office. I'm not there anymore, but still license my work there. And Cameron leads the photo editing team there. So that means he's looking at how many photos do you look at a week? Thousands. <laughs> yeah. Quite a few thousand photos and decides if they're eligible for the site. And you guys have all seen stock photo sites before. So the image in your mind is probably kind of gross, but Stocksy is totally different. Every photo on that site is cool and good. Like I could challenge you right now to go to it, dig through and try to find a cheesy photo. You might find one, but only one. <laughs> There's not many. I mean, it, it, Cameron and his team do a great job. We're human. So every now <laughs> yeah. and then something slips through the cracks. Yeah. But <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's really great work. And so he is very familiar with seeing a lot of different people's work and evaluating and giving them feedback. And also that gives him a lot of exposure to different cameras. And then, of course, you're also a professional photographer mm-hmm. uh, yourself as well. You specialize in, well... You specialize in a few different things. I mean, food is something I know you're great at. You have that blog, OurSaltyKitchen.com that you run with your wife. Yeah. Uh, and that's got really beautiful food photography. And like, and what else do you like to shoot the most? Um, professionally, I do, I actually do a lot of event work as well, which is, uh, it's an, I think it's an interesting opposite end, you know, if you will, like I can't come up with the right word of it. It's just so different than, than the food work, but it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's super social and it allows me to, kind of mingle with a lot of the the people in DC that you otherwise might not ever get to meet. And yeah, I mean, if anybody else is in Washington, DC, you should hire Cameron. He's a great photographer. But what we want to talk about today is how to get better at your photography, how to like, basically I want this to be the crash course of stuff that I wish somebody had told me earlier. Yeah. Like there's so many tutorials out there there's tons of advice, but I feel like we can make a really dense episode. And this is going to be like, this is the episode you send to all your friends that are like, oh, I'm thinking about getting into photography. Then they listen to this and they're like, oh man, I'm, I'm a professional now. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I really want to like burn through some of the, the really helpful tips that I, I, I think can get people shooting better quickly. There's, there's a lot of them. Like I, I have more than what we even have written down. And so, you know, maybe we'll need to follow up later. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot to talk about. And I do want to start off with the most basic stuff, which I'm sure most of the listeners already know uh, what aperture, ISO, and shutter speed are. You guys you guys know this. So you can, if you know, skip ahead by about three minutes because we're going to be fast. But uh, let's let's just explain what it is for anybody that isn't familiar with the, the way that you achieve correct exposure on a camera. I just did air quotes for correct. But Cameron, why don't you start us off what is the relationship between these things? What's the basic function? Well, so all three of these functions actually have a a different but equal effect on your exposure, your overall exposure. Um, Each one has a benefit and a consequence. Um, So, you know, you think about ISO, ISO determines the, I'm doing air quotes as well, film speed, because that's just kind of what we're used to saying, I guess. Right, that's the old world word for it. Yeah, I guess now it'd just be 
image capture speed. Maybe that's... Well, I also think about it in terms of, uh, in audio, it's the same as gain. The most basic thing that it's doing is like in, in the digital world, it's turning up the volume on the photoreceptors so that when light hits them, they're more sensitive. Yep. It's amplifying the signal. There, Just there you go. Plain and simple. And yeah. when you amplify a signal, gradually noise gets introduced. Yep. So that's the trade-off of ISO. It gets noisier yep. as you turn it up. Exactly. And so if, if you're a... If you happen to be a guitar nerd, just think about it in terms of like, you know, when you crank up your gain on your amp, that's when you start to get that rad distortion. Right. However, it's not always such a welcome feature with digital photography. <laughs> it can be less, it can be less rad. And I mean, I also think in film, it was a, a little nicer when you cranked up the, the, the noise, like there's a difference between digital and analog noise. Yeah. So I think with, let's not go too far down the rabbit hole, but with analog, I think that it's, it's an aesthetic, right? So you can, you can crank up the the speed and get a a different aesthetic. And sometimes people choose to do that when it's not even necessary. Okay. So that covers three minutes. So that's ISO. That's ISO. You get more noise. Now, uh, how does that relate to shutter speed? So with shutter speed, the, the faster the speed, the less light you're letting in. That's going to be a function that, you know, you have to make a decision on whether or not you want to stop the subject cold or if you want to allow a little bit of a, a little bit of motion in there. Um, I personally think that shutter speed is the is the the lowest factor in terms of uh, determining creativity. The, the last thing to consider, you mean? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Same. Thank you. <laughs> um, and then there's aperture. And I think the aperture is, is absolutely the most important of the, of the three functions. Um, it determines the amount of depth that you have in the photo. And that determination says a lot about you. And it says, well, yeah, it says a lot about your choices that you're making and what the story that you're trying to, um, to tell. Right. Like at a glance, at a thumbnail, people could tell which aperture you're using, but they may, they usually won't know what shutter speed or ISO you were at. Cause you know, if you've kind of shot it correctly, unless you're doing something for an effect, like you really have, have a really high noise on it or a really sh- sh- slow shutter speed, you, you can spot that. But in any normal image shot in like daylight conditions, you'll recognize the aperture most of all because of the blurry background that it often can cause. Or um, tack sharp all the way through. Yeah. And that's another way to also identify different cameras. Like I f- phone cameras have gotten so good these days, it can be hard to tell when in, in small photos or in certain situations, it can be hard to tell when a photo is taken on a big camera or a phone, but a giveaway is that phones just can't do the same sort of shallow depth of field. No, not well, not yet. Even with the effects, digital effects, but you can, you can still spot that. Not under scrutiny. So I think we mostly got it there. Shutter speed mm-hmm. is when the shutter, the, you know, the plane that the sensor is exposed to light and a shutter will open up and close physically if it's a DSLR or electronically if it's a mirrorless. And that length of time is the shutter speed, which is interesting, actually. Like there's electronic shutters now, and it's still going to be called shutter speed, even though nothing, like there's no physical shutter. It's just a computer saying on off. And then aperture is how wide or narrow the lens is open. And the best way to, you, to really understand aperture, go look at a, a lens and make these changes because you got you to see it opening and closing to really understand. You, you won't see this on a phone. Like, it, you know, say an iPhone has a fixed aperture mm-hmm. that doesn't expand or contract. It's always the same number. Mm-hmm. So you got to kind of pick up a big lens and, and watch what it does to see that difference. And ISO is the volume. You might also need to to do to actually see that. You might need to do that with a manual lens. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, because new lenses don't actually have an aperture ring. So a lot of you guys might not even know what we're talking about. Like, what is an aperture ring? It still can be a great way to learn is to go pick up like a cheap vintage camera to kind of explore some of this stuff and hold the button while it's open. Like, take the lens off and see what the shutter's doing inside. See what the mirror does. See how it works. Yeah, so my top recommendation for getting to know your aperture It'd be to use the uh, the aperture preview button on your computer on your computer. <laughs> oh my god, on your camera, computer camera. So you you actually use that thing? I never use that button, but I guess for learning tool, you're saying. No, I. You know what? To be honest with you, this is that. I guess this this is where I'll start. This is that that one thing that I wish that somebody had uh, informed me about a lot sooner because. I've found that that with digital photography, I spent too much time or I was spending too much time taking the photo and then looking at the back of the screen, then making an adjustment, taking more photos and looking at the back of the screen when all really all I needed to do was just hold down that button and mess with the aperture and find out which depth I really wanted. Interesting. Okay. And you'll often find this button like right around the lens. It'll be on the front of the camera. Yeah, it's typically it's it's just right. It's exactly um, to the right of the center of the lens. Cool. And that just closes down the aperture so you can get a preview. Yep. And uh, the, so the downside is that it will make the image darker because, you know, it's changing the amount of light that's actually coming into the viewfinder in that moment. But it does give you a preview of how much will be in focus. Although I can already tell we've got a uh, DSLR bias here because the situation is different on a mirrorless. That's right. Often the preview will be already happening, depending on different mirrorless cameras will preview images differently. Like I think often they'll try to keep the shutter speed so that it doesn't get really slow, even if the actual image would be slow Mm -hmm. or it'll crank up the gain, sorry, crank up the ISO higher than it (laughs) actually will be in the image just so you can see it. Uh, So it's not always exactly what you're going to see. So kind of check out your camera to to figure out what it's doing. Mm Mm-hmm. Cool. That was tip number one. Great. Okay. We're burning through this. This is awesome. Now I'm going to go, I'm going to go to my little list here. So this is a a general exposure thing that I've, I've heard confusion around, especially sometimes people end up with the opposite advice, which is confusing. And this is how to expose your image correctly. Like even just what, what does correct exposure mean? This took me quite a while to figure out, like I'd been shooting for a few years and I, I, let's also disclaim, like I didn't go to photo school and, and Cameron did. So we kind of were trained from different perspectives. And I think the way you learn can be pretty different from that. But for me, it meant I spent a long time without some very basic lessons. <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't know what it meant for something to be cor- correctly exposed. I just knew that it's what the light meter in my camera was telling me to do. That's what correct was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which isn't always correct, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You've really got it. What, what clicked for me eventually was that you have to choose a certain part of the image that is your priority and get that correctly exposed. So considering a full image as being correctly exposed is arbitrary. I mean, it's really usually a creative choice because if the image is at all dynamic, like some parts are brighter or darker than others, you're making a choice. There isn't an objective answer. If you're shooting something lit in a studio, like on a green screen and everything's evenly lit. Okay. Yeah. There's a correct, there's a right and wrong answer there. Cause everybody's the same. Everything is the same, but if, right. if there's differences, in it, yeah, if there's differences in the image, then you choose the part of the image that is your priority and you expose that correctly. So often that's part of the skin tone of your subject so that whatever you want to focus on, on their, say their face, that one part that is the most important to you 
is well exposed. So it, let's say that the light is coming from the behind them. So the side that you see is fully in shade and it's really quite a bit darker. Mm-hmm. Often the correct exposure will be to have the backside of their face correctly exposed and let the shadow fall like that. That can be a valid choice, mm-hmm. but sometimes you might want it to look backlit, have it be extremely overexposed in the background. So the background just blows out. You lose all your detail, like everything's gone, but the shaded part of the face or the, or the subject looks correctly exposed and then that can feel right. So mm-hmm. that's a creative decision. You know, you just got to decide which part of the image is, is going to be correct. The whole thing may not be. And yeah, I don't know. What do you think about that? Uh, this was really confusing to me for a long time. Um, even having gone to, to photo school, what, what the heck do they mean by correct exposure? And I think that, that there's a lot of rules of thumb that you can go to just in terms of like for whites overexposed, for darks underexposed, such things. The way that, that it makes best sense to me, uh, just in practical terms, is I think about it kind of like cooking, right? So like... You know, when you read in, in, an, in, a, uh, in a recipe, season to taste, <laughs> like that's kind of the, the same thing I, that I feel about with exposure. As long as you're, you're hovering somewhere around what, what the meter on your camera is telling you is the center, you're going to get something that's, that's going to be useful. But then you can season to taste by either bumping it up or down a little bit. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly the right way to, to talk about it. And then the way that I wrote it down as well is that you also need to be aware of what the medium that you're, you're shooting to your format wants for exposure. So that's right. in digital, that typically means to be safe, you would slightly underexpose and for film, you'd often overexpose. So again, going back to, you know, choosing what is correct, you'd go a little under, a little over. And that's because with digital highlights will clip in and clipping means blowing out. They'll become artificially white. Like the sensor can't capture that information anymore. It's so much brighter than what your sensor can handle that it just goes to pure white. And that'll happen sooner in the highlights than it'll go to pure black in the shadows. That's right. So if you are underexposed and you raise the exposure in post-production, when you're editing the photo, you'll find that it might increase the noise a little bit. It's like boosting the ISO, but you'll be able to save highlights that might have otherwise completely disappeared. Yep. And then how does it work for film? You shoot more film than I do these days. So for film, so it's 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 similar. It's basically just the opposite, right? So first of all, with film, you can dump a lot of light onto a piece of film without it really like being angry with you. Whereas opposed to like with a digital sensor, if you dump too much light onto it, then you lose information. So with film, it's the opposite. So like if you don't have enough light, then it's not writing anything onto that film. It's not telling it anything. So it's just going to be black. Because of the way that that the chemistry works and just the science of it all, you're always safer by overexposing it because then you can adjust to taste afterwards, either with a scanner or in a dark room. Um, But you can never you can never bring out information that was never there to begin with. Totally. Yeah, it's just a it's a rule of thumb. You usually typically just about any kind of negative film, you can overexpose by at least a stop and up to many stops, like two, three or four stops and still get a very usable image. And this changes with every format. Like you have to read about your format before you're doing it, because like you just said, that's the way it is for negative film. For slide film, it's different. You have to basically get the exposure right on because you can't adjust it. 
Yeah, slide film is, is more similar to digital, except for even more persnickety. Right, yeah. <laughs> and then with shooting video, if you're shooting in a log format, which is like really when it, the image looks really flat and you have to add the contrast back in, a lot of those will want you to overexpose again. So with Sony's, especially you shoot them more like film, which, you know, it's so you got to be aware of what you're shooting. Mm-hmm. It isn't a universal rule. I want, maybe there might be some digital cameras out there that you want overexpose. I, I'm, I'm not sure, but you should look into what you're shooting on and, and confirm, but typically digital underexpose film overexpose. Yeah. And, and allow yourself a little bit of room to, to make considerations here because there are a lot of people who will tell you to expose to the right on the histogram. Is that the right? What What does that mean? What's a histogram? (laughs) I don't know how basic we're getting today, but let's pretend it's the very beginning. Yeah. Do we even want to go there? (laughs) A histogram is a little chart that shows you what your light is like. And just that like the left of it is the dark side. The right of it is the bright side. You know, you should know what it means. We're not going to explain it. So go Google it. But anyway, left is dark, right is bright. Yeah. So there are a lot of schools of thought that, that tell you to, to expose to the right of your histogram, which is kind of the opposite of what we're telling you. And the reason that we're telling you that is because we have a a ton of experience doing that. And we know that because we know better. Yeah. (laughs) And that we know that the technology of digital cameras has come so far that like you can get a lot of information from an underexposed image. Whereas if you do expose it too far to the right and you lose that image detail in the highlights, like Tyler said earlier, there's no getting it back. That information is blown out. The sensor cannot read it and it's gone forever. And that's bad. Yeah. There are different schools of thought, but I think that ours is more up to date. And more <laughs> and much take. more common. Like I, that's why it's weird to me when I hear anybody say that it's not, that's not common advice, but it is out there. It used to be common, but it's now becoming less. But it, you know, if you're, if you're just Googling, you might come across that and it might be confusing. So well, I, I want to keep talking, but um, I have a bad habit of that. So I'm going to I'm going to ask you to read your next tip, Cameron. Yeah, this is something that I did learn and and really early on in, in photo school, and it served me very, very well. But as an editor, I, I certainly recognize that this is not something that everybody is perfectly aware of. And it's, it's kind of a simple rule. And that is that um, no matter what you your settings that you choose between your ISO, your aperture, and your shutter speed, the rule of thumb is that if you're hand-holding your camera, you want to make sure that your shutter speed is at the minimum at least equal to uh, the, the number of your focal length. So that would be, let's say if I'm shooting a 50 millimeter, I would want my shutter speed to be at minimum 1 50th of a second. So then if I was, conversely, if I was shooting a 35 millimeter, then I could get away with one thirty-fifth of a second. And also, let's say if I'm shooting a 200 millimeter, that, you know, the, then we're starting to get up into shutter speeds that are a little bit harder to achieve in, in more situations because of it's less light. You still have to be able to hold it, you know, you already still have to be able to have that shutter speed be at least a 200. The, the rule stays uh, stays the same no matter what the focal length and what the shutter speed is. And let's, let's explain a little of why that is too, because it's not totally obvious. I had heard that rule way before it made any sense to me. Mm-hmm. Like I, I just thought it, I, I thought it had something to do with exposure. Like I didn't get it. But the the reason is as a lo- lens gets longer and you're further zoomed in, mm-hmm. your movements become magnified as well. So yeah, when you're handheld, you've got a big 200 millimeter lens. If you move the lens 
say, an inch to the left or an inch to the right. An easy way to imagine this, let's say you're pointing it at the moon, right? Mm -hmm. And you've got a super long lens and you move it left and right one or two inches, the moon will completely appear and disappear as you go past it on a big zoom lens. But if you have a really wide lens, like imagine an iPhone, you move left and right and the moon's always in it because, you know, it's so wide. You see the whole sky. So that movement is not exaggerated. And that movement is what causes blur, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are moving from the left to the right during that exposure, you see all of the different moments of the exposure blend together to become a blur. So yeah, you, it's so much easier to get a blurry image if you're have a slow shutter speed on a long lens. That's right. And uh, thank you. That was actually a really great way of explaining it. I think that, that many of us have played with a telescope and if uh, and usually the first thing that we try to look at is the moon with a telescope and yeah it can be really tough to actually find something that's that that's that right, far to away get it, and small. to get it in your sights even yeah yeah so you know you have to kind of mess with it and um but when you you know translate to a camera doesn't you know you might be focused on something and click the shutter speed and you think that like oh well i got it but you don't react you don't even feel the micro movements that are happening Exactly. Yeah. You think you're being still. Yeah. And this is why a lot, there's a lot of technology out there that is, uh, there's a lot of different names for it now. Uh, Nikon calls it vibration reduction. Canon calls it image stabilization. And now, uh, IBIS has become common for a few different platforms and in IB, IBS in body image stabilization. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, that's pretty cool. So a lot of people probably won't even need to know this information at some point. You know? <laughs> yeah, actually, when we started this tip, I wasn't even thinking about how much it's changed. But because, yeah. yeah, it can be a huge difference, like especially on some of those newer cameras like Olympus, I know, goes really far and uh, Panasonic. Their, their stabilization is extremely strong. Like it's very powerful. And, and this rule will change as your lenses or sensors are more stabilized. Yeah, don't they do like up to five stops of yeah, yeah, some of five point five? It's crazy. But I'll also say that assuming no stabilization, I'd st- I would also be more conservative than this. Like I personally am more conservative because, uh, especially at the longer lengths, like a two hundred millimeter lens, I find that at two hundredth of a second, I can definitely end up with m- motion blur. It's pretty easy to. So uh, I would try to get even even a little further than this. Like this is a bare minimum, but, but try to be faster. And cause like, for example, uh, if you're on a really wide lens on an 18 millimeter an 18th of a second is a bit too slow for anything. Yeah. So you're right. Um, I totally agree with that. That's why I was emphasizing like at the very minimum. Right. And yeah, yeah. and I would even go, I'm going to actually throw in a couple more things just at that. So like if you find you're at some kind of a threshold, let's just say for whatever reason, increasing your ISO is not an option right? Or um, changing your aperture is not an option. So like maybe you're already at the maximum aperture and really the, you know, you're down to that, like that's as low as you can get is, is that, that corresponding shutter speed. Hold your breath. Um, that's right, one yeah. of the, you know, one of the things that I do, I, I do it often whenever I'm really close to, to that threshold and just kind of stiffen up and hold my breath and get the shot. Another thing that you can do is you know, and this takes a little bit of practice, but you can use your camera strap in a, in a way, such a way that you tighten it up against your your elbow or your shoulder, um, so that you're creating some resistance between your your body and the camera, which can kind of stabilize the camera a little bit. 
And that can also help when you're at that threshold. Try to try to put your elbows on something so that you're resting against it and your muscles aren't shaking from the weight. Yep. That actually works probably just about better than anything, honestly. Yeah, so, become yeah. a tripod. Yeah, become a tripod. And yeah, it can help a lot. Cool. Okay. I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to add something to my last tip because I still want to just, <laughs> when you overexpose, uh, this is a pet peeve. I want to do a YouTube video about this. When you clip digitally, the whites become 100% white. They become perfect white, which is a digital concept. Perfect white doesn't exist in the real world, right? We don't live in a world of absolutes like that, where there's a perfect white or black. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a matter of perceived whiteness and perceived. Yeah, we're blackness. talking about a number value here because it's exactly yeah digital. So off, often you'll see like in some of the Photoshop settings, it's two fifty five. Mm-hmm. So you go zero to two hundred fifty five levels of black, and that's in an eight bit image. In two fifty five, that's perfect white. Zero is perfect black. So yep. please never let your whites be two fifty five. <laughs> never let them be perfect digital white. Unless I mean the, the only time it can be acceptable is if you have specular highlights, which are, how do you describe that? Like reflections of the sun or sometimes a, a, like a light bulb could be that. How how do you describe what could be street lights could be, you know, different kinds of reflections that are happening. Like in uh, like if you're shooting glass and stuff like that, it's a, it's like a point of light that is so overexposed. You would never expect it. They're like stars other than white. Yeah. It's, it's just so far overexposed in your image you you're not worried about it. And it's usually a small part part of it, right? Like easy place to see it. If you take photo of a wave, there's all these little spots where the water is reflecting a hundred percent, perfectly white sun. Mm -hmm. And that will never be, that's that's fine for that to be perfect white. But if you're a sky, like you've got, let's, I was talking about backlit image before, right? Where the person is shaded. So you've cranked up the exposure a whole bunch so that they become well exposed, but now the sky is blown out. You know, the sky is too bright. Only the person's exposed. So the sky digitally is now 255 and it is now 100% white. When you're editing that later, please bring that down a little bit. So I, I keep referring to the scale of 255, bring that down to 250 or 248 or something like that. You probably don't uh, use those numbers if you don't already know what I'm talking about. So <laughs> in in other apps, like if you're using Visco to, uh, to edit your photos, that's like bring, well, all the filters do that, but you could bring your highlights down a little bit. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different ways to do it. I guess we probably can't get into how to do it right now, but please don't let them be blown out. It looks like garbage. Yeah, I think that's the 102. <laughs> yeah, it's, if it's on a web page that has a white background, the photo starts to blend into the web. It disappears into the web page, and that's always bad. Yeah. Okay, I used, I used up mine. I was going to try to make that fast, but I didn't. So you go. What's your next one? Okay. I, again, this is, this is actually one of those things that, that when I was in school, nobody ever actually talked about using aperture priority. You know, it was kind of like it was, it was a function that existed on your, on, your, on your camera that was like, well, what is this? And they're like, don't worry about it. Shoot in manual. <laughs> You know, and, and, uh, there was this, uh, I don't know, I guess maybe, I guess maybe it's beyond even the photo school, but just this idea that to be a professional or to be a, a real photographer, then you must shoot in manual, mm-hmm. um, which is, is very much not true. Drives yeah. me bonkers. Yeah. I actually, I, I hate it when I have to shoot in manual, to be honest with you. And I am a professional photographer. Yeah. <laughs> so there. 
but anyway, the aperture priority. So, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I would argue that it is without question the most important of the three functions that determine exposure. Aperture priority is is making that choice of how much de- how much you want to have in focus or how much you don't want to have in focus. And so it's it's definitely like don't don't overlook it. I would say that if you really wanted to get to understand depth of field, there's no quicker way to get there than to by start shooting now with aperture priority and really playing with it and practicing. You know, and don't just make increments, you know, small incremental changes when you're experimenting. Try bigger ones. So like if you're, you know, if you have a uh, a standard lens, you know, that starts at uh, the widest aperture would be like f4, you know, take a shot at f4 and then, you know, go up one stop and take a shot at, at 5.6 and then go up another stop and take a shot at, at f8. And then really look at the, how those differences affect the result of the photo. And then once you get, you know, once you start to understand like what you can expect from each of these stops, then you can really use it as a powerful creative tool and using aperture priority gets you there quicker. So if you already know what the, what you want from the final outcome, the aperture priority is just going to go ahead and determine the shutter speed for you, which is really super convenient because then you're only really thinking in two terms, you know, you have your ISO and you have your aperture. That doesn't mean that you can totally ignore the shutter speed. No. You do always have to make sure that you're still meeting that minimum that we talked about a moment ago with the uh, meeting the, the focal length. Yeah. Or also that your auto ISO hasn't gone totally out of control if that's what the automatic setting is. Because sometimes I've looked over and seen people's cameras and they're, yeah, they wanted to be at F4. That's fine. But their ISO is suddenly it's. 6400 6400 6, 6, <laughs> when uh they clearly don't need it to be like you you know it, be be aware of of the effect that it's mm-hmm. having but it takes some of the burden off of being concerned about it moment to moment mm-hmm. yeah and I'd, I'd actually i i would suggest that if you are using aperture priority it's probably also a good idea to not use auto iso right so you're just letting the shutter be the automatic setting. So you're set, you are manually setting both aperture and ISO. That's right. So that is how I typically shoot still. So this is the nice thing about this tip is if you start there, you can end there. You can, you know, shoot most of your career like that. Like you need to know manual. You, you 100% have to understand it. You can't Mm -hmm. avoid it, but once you understand it, you won't be using it that often. I don't know many professionals Except for in studio. Studios, when you switch to manual most often, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I would say that in studio, or I, I, I actually think of it as like, if I'm on a tripod, that's usually when I'm shooting manually. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, if I'm not on a tripod, then I'm an aperture priority almost all of the time. Totally. And yeah. th- okay, this also inspires me to go on a mini rant about some professional photographer myths. And I've been seeing this a lot because of because of YouTube, because stuff I post... Uh, is exposed to like a super wide audience, right? So it's anybody, anybody can be in there commenting. And in often in videos, I kind of introduce myself saying like, I'm Tyler Stallman, a professional photographer and filmmaker, whatever. Mm -hmm. And saying you're a professional isn't, it's not a badge of honor. It means it's my job. Like it's a thing I do for money. (laughs) It's my job. And the way some people respond is they'll look at how I'm shooting in the video and they'll say like, not shooting manual. 
professional my ass. Like they'll, they'll have some smart ass comment about, because if I'm not shooting in raw, how could I possibly be a professional? If I'm shooting with a cell phone, not a professional. This is an incredibly confused way of looking at what professional means. And it's such a minority of people. It's probably not really worth my while, but if, but it frustrates me a lot because it's so dumb and it's condescending. Uh, con- yeah. And it comes from a place of them wanting to show a level of expertise that the statement actually reveals that they are missing because most photographers don't shoot a manual most of the time. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not that common. Uh, and there are a ton of applications where shooting in raw isn't useful or important. Um, yeah. I mean, I usually, I usually shoot raw when I'm shooting on my SLRs on my cell phones. I would never shoot raw. Like it's such a waste of memory. You don't get that much quality improvement. The automatic settings of like HDR and stuff in phones is great. You, you're not going to do way better in Lightroom. Like you, you can eke out a little bit of extra quality, but if you want the quality, just pick up a bigger camera. So there isn't a way you have to shoot to be a professional. Like I know professionals that don't understand the, a lot of their technology, but they, they do it for a living and they, you know, anyway. No, you're right. And professional just means that you're making your income, your, the majority of your income doing a thing. It doesn't mean that it makes you better at that thing. Yeah, and, totally. and oftentimes it's, that's actually not the case. And there's different levels of technical expertise or like at really high levels. I mean, you know, at Annie Leibovitz levels, she's not concerned about any of the technical stuff. She understands, she understands all this exposure stuff we're talking about, but she doesn't need to worry about anything technical because she's got a crew that deals with it for her. Mm-hmm. Like this is pretty common. And the higher up you get, the less you actually have to worry about this stuff. So anyway, there's a lot of different ways to do photography for a job. So don't, confine yourself to only thinking about it in one way. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. That was, that was a rant. That wasn't a tip. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My next one is about aspect ratios. And this is something that I only really like started noticing. Mm, I, I really changed it about two years ago. So it's pretty recent for me. And that's that you can really think about the ratio of an image. And, and this word isn't clicking for you. An aspect ratio is like the horizontal by the vertical, right? So is it a really tall image or is it a square image or whatever? They is don't it, have is to it be, letterbox? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the same ratio for to, uh, por, um, vertical and horizontal images. Different ratios lend themselves well to different applications. For example, video is typically a wider ratio than photography and it's not really an accident. Like it, it just kind of works better for absorbing that type of material in the specific place. I didn't notice it until recently is portrait images. So a standard 35 millimeter camera, full frame camera, any mirrorless camera, pretty much all like mirrorless or DSLR cameras now are four by six consumer cameras. Well, I I, I was kind of going to say that, but then like cell phones are all three by three by four. Or four by four by three, whichever, and and you know point and shoots. So you depending, but um, any any of our super professional hobbyist uh, listeners are you know you, you've probably picked up a DSLR recently, and so you're seeing four by six images. That is weirdly tall for a vertical image, and that's what I didn't get. Even after I'd been shooting them for years and staring at them for years, it's super super tall. Like it looks kind of weird, and usually it's incorporating kind of useless data into the image. Like when you look around the world, our world is more of wide than it is tall. Like the way we absorb information is 
better absorbed left to right than up and down. And when you look, just look at ahead of you, wherever you are in the world right now, if, especially if you're indoors, you'll notice that the top and bottom are the floor and ceiling. Like that is not the most important thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And as your aspect ratio gets really tall, it can look kind of pointless and ugly (laughs) compared to other images. Yeah. And and that, of course, like that depends on the subject, right? So uh, any, any, any rule or thing that we say here that, you know, like that, there's always a way to break it. Right. So there's plenty of, of really wonderful photos that are taken vertically at full aspect ratio of whatever the camera is that they'd work fine. But what Tyler's saying is that when you're shooting portraits, it does feel odd, too tall, too much information, less of the point. Well, the big, and the biggest exception I'd say is if you're doing something that is meant for like a full screen format on a phone, Mm -hmm. say, say Instagram stories, which I know a lot of people would like kind of dismiss, but like, that's a real thing. Like a lot of people are watching stories now. Stories are legit. And if you don't take the fact that that's incredibly tall into account, you're going to take a worse photo because I I mean, Mm -hmm. on an iPhone 10, it's more than 16 by nine. Like it's super, it's very, very tall. So it totally depends on where the image is being delivered, but on the web, on, on a computer screen or on an iPad or in a print on Instagram. Yeah. In print, in most places, less tall aspect ratios are, are, are kind of more useful. So I crop everything on. So for my wife's blog, where a lot of my photography goes, we do all the wide images as four by six and vertical images as three by four, or is it four by three? I guess I don't know. We you know, flip them for vertical horizontal, <laughs> but yeah, you know, so the point is, is that three by four and four by six sit on each other. So if it was a magazine spread, you could fit two verticals in the same space as one horizontal. Yeah. Does that make sense? Did, did I explain that? Well, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of word soup in there. Hopefully, hopefully it came across. Well, you're, and I'm, I'm an unfair person to ask because of course <laughs> I understand it, but because we've talked about this before. Okay. You go next. All right. Yeah, so this one actually ties in to some of the other ones that that I've been talking about. And so, you know, a, a thing that might come up if you start using aperture priority is it's like, well, doesn't, isn't, you know, what's the difference between aperture priority and auto? Like, isn't that just like, aren't you just letting the, the camera make the exposure decisions? I mean, sure, you're deciding how much of the depth you want, but isn't the camera just making the decision on how much exposure? And, you know, the easy answer is, well, yeah, kind of, <laughs> uh, but you do have the option for controls and every camera has it. Uh, as far as I know, maybe there are a few that, that, that are really bare bones that don't have it, but most of them do. And what that is called is it's a, it's an exposure variance control. I don't know what that means. <laughs> You're, now, now you can test it on me. Cause I've never heard it described as that. Tell me about it. Yeah, so a lot of a lot of people see it on their camera and and never touch it, and never know what it's for, and never know like how it's used. But um, it works perfectly in conjunction with both aperture priority and shutter priority. And what it does is it's it's like a, usually a, a little dial or button that has a, a a plus and a minus on it. And sometimes it'll say EV and a plus and a minus, and the EV is the exposure variance. And I'm just so, going to interject to say that the how easily you can adjust this on a camera is a big measure of how much I like that camera. Like I want that. Oh, absolutely. That control has to be front and center and easy to use. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I have, I have this, uh, you know, I have many, many cameras, but I have one that, that it's, uh, it's with me all the time. It's basically my, my quote unquote pocket camera and it is a old film camera and it shoots in aperture priority by design. Like that's the only way that you can shoot it. There is no other function. And so obviously if that's the case and this is meant for like the uh, experienced photographer, then that exposure variance control needs to be extremely handy. Right. Mm -hmm. Just like you're saying in this particular camera, it's the Fuji class S, which nobody here is going to understand what that means, but bear with me. But it's beautiful. It is a beautiful camera. The exposure variance control is right on the front of the camera, like where you're, where you would be, your left index finger would probably be st- sitting anyway when you're holding the camera with two hands. Can I, can I emphasize this even more that I would buy a camera that only had this control? <laughs> like it's, if I could have one control, that would be it. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's that, it's that important, right? So don't ignore it. And, you know, learn how it, you know, interacts with your aperture priority or your shutter priority. But I, like I said, like aperture priority is number one. Shutter priority is very, whew, I don't even know how to say it. Like, I don't, I've not, let me just say that I never use shutter priority. Well, here's the ever. one thing that some people use it for is it's more useful Sport. for video. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. And sports. There you go. There's two because mm-hmm. sports, yeah, you need to make sure there's no motion blur for video. You want to shoot at Uh, the speed that you shoot at is important relative to your frames per second. So you need to control it. All right. So somebody might be saying, okay, Cameron, um, if it's, uh, if aperture priority is by and large already automatically determining my exposure, why would I want to change that? Yeah, Cameron, why? The reason is, is that uh, depending on your subject, like let's just say that you're shooting like a black wall and there's a lot of texture and you're like, oh, this texture is great and I really want to capture this. You would want to to compensate for the automatic exposure because what the... The meter in the camera is exposing for something, this concept called middle gray, right? Which is like, if we're going back to talking about that zero to 255 of, of black values, middle gray is right there in the center. And so uh, what you want to do if you're faced with such a situation is you would want to change that exposure value to ne- into the negatives. So you could experiment and maybe try negative one or maybe negative two. Depending on the type of camera, uh, like my pocket camera only goes to negative two, but you're, if you have like a, a DSLR or an SLR, um, it's likely that you could go all the way down to like a negative five or something like that. So you can really play with it. But it, so if you're if the majority of the subject is really dark, then you would want to underexpose. And then, you know, if the, conversely, if the majority of your uh, subject is really bright, like say snow, you'd want to overexpose that. So you'd, you know, like if I was going to be shooting a snowy scene with this camera, like an aperture priority, then I would go ahead and just crank it all the way up to plus two. The reason being is that if you don't do that, then your white snow is going to end up being gray because that's what it's metering for. You basically have to understand this to properly shoot this stuff. Like if you just shoot snow, even with a really smart camera that has good auto exposure, it'll usually get snow wrong. Like I don't have any cameras that are guess right about there's and, and it's, it's really kind of funny because there's no auto snow scene in, in cameras you know like there's a lot of other scenes that you get auto um options for and consumer cameras but there's never one for snow 
Uh, and it's because it's tricky. Well, now right? everybody's going to write in that has that one that uh, has a snow setting. <laughs> well, well, cool. Then I can, you know, give give me something I can reference so I can tell people that. Oh, yeah, there's. It's true. You got this one works for snow. You got to you got to know this stuff. Another really useful time for using the exposure variance is if you are um, if you're trying to backlight something. Sometimes if you're taking a portrait against you know a, a sunset or a bright situation you know, you're going to end up with a silhouette portrait, right? And maybe that's not what you wanted. And, you know, you couldn't, you weren't in a situation where you could move the subject or move yourself to, to compensate. So how do you compensate for that? And if you're backlit and that's just use your exposure variance, you turn it up. So if I was going to be um, trying to, to be able to actually see somebody's face against a sunset when I was taking their portrait, then I would go ahead and just click that up to, to plus one and, and then take another one at plus two, which is called bracketing, by the way. Bracketing is when you take a series of photos, the, the exact same photo, but with different exposure values, just in case you're concerned that you're not going to get it right. Man, you're just like, this is a full course here. Uh, you're welcome. This is a six course uh, podcast. <laughs> we haven't even hit the entree yet. Well, yeah, and just to like say my version of, of what you're talking about, because uh, yeah, like it's just, it is so important. So I might just say everything you said in different terms. But like, yeah. this is how I shoot everything. I mean, this is not everything studio stuff again. That's kind of the exception, but like, yeah, the way, the way in that the, world. the way that I just take photos on a normal day is I set my camera to aperture priority. I usually set it either as low as possible if I'm looking specifically for shallow depth field. Mm -hmm. And then my most common settings are probably either like 2.8 for shallow depth field. And some people go a lot lower. Like I'm an exception. I don't get... I need things to be sharper than average. So I don't go down to 1.4 very often. Yeah. And then up to like 5.6 on the higher end. So I'm usually moving between those two, maybe like half and half. My photos are either one and I, I choose that. And then I set my ISO based roughly off of what my mental light meter tells me the room is like. I'm like, okay, it's kind of a dark room, so I'll turn it up a bit. I'm outside, so we'll turn it all the way down to 100, things like mm -hmm. that. And then I let the shutter speed do its thing, and I just look at it. I just keep an eye on the shutter speed, and I'm always kind of checking in like, okay, is it still fast enough? Have I, have I created any issues? If I notice like, okay, it's a bit slower than I'd like, it might be getting some blur, then I'll turn up the ISO until it's safe. So, mm -hmm. so now I'm like, I'm getting more or less correctly exposed images most of the time. And then if I notice that something is wrong, like, cause I'm checking the back, which kind of sucks, it's called, it's called chimping and it's something some people discourage, but it's how a lot of, I think, modern digital photographers shoot like older photographers would <laughs> meter, use a light meter more first, like get, get the exposure and then just shoot and get it right first. Now I think it's more common to like shoot, check what the photo looks like, make adjustments. And that's what yeah. I do because the, I think it's, I think it can be useful because then you still got a photo. Even if the exposure wasn't exactly on the time, wasn't only spent metering. The time was spent getting, capturing the moment as well. So I, I prefer yeah. to have a photo while I'm metering effectively. And then I ride the exposure as I notice things are incorrect. I go, you know, up a stop, down a stop, quarter stop, whatever, like or thirds, usually stops go in thirds. Also, what's a stop? <laughs> we keep saying that. Well, I, I realized earlier when we like in, in a different part of this discussion that we didn't go over stops. And so basically stops are, are clicks of exposure in between each aperture, aperture or shutter, uh, shutter speed setting. 
Now, the where that gets confusing in modern cameras is that that now we we go down to obscene increments in between stops. So there's a third a stop, two thirds of a stop, you know. So it gets it gets a little bit messy. But basically speaking, um, a stop of light would go from like say if, in terms of ISO, you'd go from 100 to 200, and then to 200 to 400, it doubles every time. 400 to 800, 800 to 1600, 16 to 32, and so on. With aperture, um, that would go. One four would go to two eight. Two eight would go to five six. Five six would go to eleven. Well, and I'm, I'm sure it's tough to digest all these numbers just hearing them out loud. So this is a good thing to Google. Like it's kind of a hard thing to get across in a podcast, maybe. But that having or doubling. You know, I that's just made a mistake. I, I need to correct my mistake. <laughs> okay, okay, go so, back. Go back. Uh, shutter speed or ISOs double, right? But not, apertures don't. So it goes from. It actually goes from. I think it goes from two to two. Because apertures are logarithmic. Yeah. So it goes from two to uh, two point eight to four to five six to to eight to eleven. Uh, and, and then I, most people don't go beyond 11. <laughs> uh, and there's a good reason for that. Yeah, but, because of spinal tap. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the thing to <laughs> the thing that uh, you'll not realize till you've been shooting for a while is how much you end up remembering those numbers. Like in an aperture, te- sort of technically could be any number in between those. Like there are apertures at any range, depending on exactly how the lens is opening and closing. But those become the standards. Mm-hmm. So those numbers, t- uh, you know, 1.4, 2.8. 5.6, 4.0s also come in 8, 11, 16, 22. That's like, kind of, it's kind of everything you'll ever hear for the most part. Mm-hmm. Anyway, going going back to stops again, like I'm just going to try to say it a different way. I mean, I think you, you nailed it, but that uh, a stop is a unit of measurement for exposure that is when there's double or half of the amount of light in the scene. And figuring out exactly how those relate back to their the numbers of aperture, shutter, and ISO, you got to do your homework on that one, but it's double or half the light, which it's funny how our eyes don't perceive as double. Like when you double the light in a scene, our eyes are like, oh, that's up. That's like 20% more light. You know, it takes mm-hmm. a, a long time to realize I, for me, I don't know, maybe I'm just dumb, but what double really means. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it, you're kind of dealing with a different um, operating system, right? Like the human brain versus a, a camera sensor. Yeah, totally. It's very the way that it that it perceives things is, you know, the, the human brain works pretty much instantaneously. And, you know, like obviously, a, you know, a, a, a computer usually works pretty, pretty quickly as well. But you, you know, you have to make those changes to be able to see the result of that. So it's not. Yeah. So you, you may not quite realize how much of a change it is just because the way that you're used to rendering the information in your brain. And and just another thing to know about those changes is that there is, even though some of those numbers seem small, like the difference between 1.4 and Mm 2.8, that's, that sounds subtle, right? It is a huge difference. Like go find a lens that does that, try it out. And you'll see that 1.4 is exponentially more light. I don't remember what the math is, how that works out, but it's a lot. Where where, are we still on yours? Sorry. Now I'm lost. I interrupt you with a stops conversation. Well, we you you wanted to give your explanation of the uh, exposure variance. Oh, right. So I I maybe I finished it's it. now. <laughs> yeah. So now I think it's your turn to start a new. Thread. Okay. 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 I got a new one. This is totally unrelated to everything. 
Oh no, I haven't. Okay. I have something to append to my last one and careful not to crop things into non-standard ratios. This is going to be really quick. Sometimes I'll see people like crop an image to exactly the size of the human that's in it. And it's some totally arbitrary, crazy ratio, like find out what common ratios are and use the ones that are appropriate. So Again, the thing to Google, but typical ones are like four point four by six, three by four, sixteen by nine is what a TV is. Four by five is what Instagram is, and one by one is square. So you know, there, there's more out there, but use one that other people are using. Otherwise, your image looks weird. So yeah, and that, that you know, I think the caveat to that is that you know, of course, use whatever makes you happy. But, yeah, yeah. You know, if you, you ever you. plan on sharing or selling those images to anybody else, then it's really a good idea to, to use the, the common aspect ratios. It, it's a way to look more professional and especially be consistent with it. If you're like publishing a portfolio site and every image you upload is in a different ratio, like a random different ratio, it looks terrible. So yeah, it's, it's basically like, a, it's like a glaring target of like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing for sure. Okay. <laughs> okay here's my real tip. I don't have a lot to say yeah. about it, but it relates to a bit of a myth. It's kind of an anti-tip. Because something I heard a lot at the beginning is that to make people's faces look more flattering, especially people with more rounder faces, more to their face, shooting from above Mm -hmm. can make them look slimmer. (laughs) And I think that's not great advice. No. There are conditions where that can happen. And I think the main reason for thinking about this is when you do that, um, basically it places their chin below their head, right? So if if, basically yeah. if they have a double chin, it's it's hidden. That I, somewhat, somewhat, yeah. I, so I can see why the people in the photos feel like, oh, it's not it's not visible, so that makes it a nicer photo. That's just not really how it is. Like you do want to not shoot from below because shooting from below can emphasize that. So if they do have extra chin in there, but maybe don't, and they're self-conscious about it, don't emphasize it by going below them if they'd rather not. But if you're shooting straight on, it's more about their posture than anything else. Like the most flattering photo, if you want somebody to look slimmer is, you know, from more or less straight on, maybe a little bit below and make sure that their neck is kind of extended a little bit, that they're bringing their face a little bit forward, that their muscles are strong in their neck area, like that they're posturing themselves in a way that shows the best side of themselves possible. And that's how you get a flattering photo, not by going above them. And you can also Mm -hmm. like with standing photos, it ruins them. This is like the most common problem of people taking photos of other people. Uh, You've got your cell phone and you're holding it at your eye level, taking a head to toe photo. The people's feet look tiny and their heads look enormous. And everybody does this Mm -hmm. all the time. And it drives me insane. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And what's worse is when your subject is like convinced of that, of this argument that you must shoot from a high oh angle I know. or else they'll look fat. Cause then they're like constantly telling you, telling you to, cause when you're like, especially if you're using your phone, right. Cause then you have to shoot from like almost waist level to get like, yeah. At, you know, accurate proportions. And they're telling you like, no, you need to shoot from above. And it's just like, I, okay, but your head is going to be massive. <laughs> well, and the, the first thing I was saying, uh, you know, I was saying like generally shoot from, uh, you know, straight on. Uh, I was really thinking of portraits. Mm-hmm. If you're shooting head to toe, the camera yeah. needs to be low. You cannot, you should not be shooting a full length photo from eye level ever. I think, I don't know if there's any exceptions to this unless, unless it's for effect. Like if you remember stock photos in the nineties, it was totally a thing to put on a fisheye lens and climb up a ladder and shoot down at people. So they had really tiny feet. Mm-hmm. 
it's super cheesy. <laughs> like, it, yeah, it was, it was a look of the time, but it's ridiculous. Like typically want to avoid that at all costs. Yeah. I mean, it's like a cartoon effect. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's, it's not to be used for any serious application whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Again, it's one of those, these are all things that uh, you can do them, but there are red flags that, uh, you know, this person should not be taken seriously as a photographer. Well, yeah, you, there there are moments where it, it may apply, right? It's just going back to that, like any you know, every rule can be broken in the right situation. But you also just you really have to consider the fact that if you're shooting from a high angle, you might be emphasizing a you know, like if this is just just your like go to thing, like oh, I got to shoot from high because that makes people look more flattering. You might be emphasizing like a big forehead. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you might be really like letting down your, your subject in totally, that regard. Yeah. If you're shooting from below, then you're shooting up into their nostrils. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sorry, but nobody wants that ever. That's never a thing. Shooting from up high. It also just makes people look short. Like generally people want to be standing tall, like feel like they're looking or look like they feel proud. Mm-hmm. And that down thing makes them feel, look like they feel uh, small, like it's in, in, in filmmaking, like, you know, if you want to get a little deeper into it, when you're shooting from below, it gives people, it communicates that this person is more important or is more, has more confidence. And if you're shooting from above Mm -hmm. down to somebody, it means that they are lower in the social totem pole in this scene, or they are nervous or they're afraid. That's, that's what you're communicating by doing that. So be careful with it. Mm -hmm. All right. What's your next one? So my next one is if you are trying to, to really learn to understand how to use your lenses, don't start with a zoom. Uh, A lot of times, like I'm sure you hear this all the time, Tyler, when people are asking like, you know, what kind of camera should I get? You know, that's a pretty common question, right? So people automatically have this like knee jerk reaction. They're like, Oh, I need a zoom lens. Cause it sounds like it's, you know, like Versatile, right? Yeah. Yeah. Versatile. And and it's, it's zoomy, right? I mean, (laughs) zoom is kind of like, I mean, it's kind of an, it's kind of an impressive name just for marketing reasons (laughs) because it just sounds good, right? It's in zoom, you know, wow, geez. But if you really want to get to understand like how any one of the focal lengths in your zoom lens works, then I recommend getting a prime lens. Prime means that it's a fixed focal length. So it's, it, it's doesn't zoom. It doesn't go from wide to long. Uh, ever it just does one thing and it's it's actually i think that with professionals depending on the type of work you do you know like uh, obviously i think that there's you know a lot of uses where professionals prefer pro zooms but usually all those people have gone through the exercise of learning about what each of those focal lengths does by using a prime totally yeah and so Yes. My suggestion is to commit to using a single uh, or uh, one prime lens and really learn what it does. Uh, Learn what it does when you when you shoot a subject close up. Learn what it does when you shoot a subject mid length and also from far away and see what the effects are and get to know it and know what, what to expect, especially if you ever, you know, if you have any aspiration to make money using your camera it's going to be critical that you understand which lens is going to be right for the job to meet the satisfaction of your client. And so the best place to start, I think that's, that's probably universally agreed upon is a 50 millimeter. Mm-hmm. Um, in most classroom situations, um, 
a professor or a teacher will usually tell you to start with a 50 millimeter because it's it's what they consider uh, air quotes normal. In reality, a 35 millimeter is is a little bit closer to normal. Uh, Whoa, stirring some controversy here. Uh, yeah, but. <laughs> Uh, I think that the reason why a 50 is great is because um, it's less likely to create weird distortions in your subjects. And that's kind of a big part of that air quote normal is that, you know, like when you're using a 35 millimeter um, lens, then if if your subject is outside of the the, the center sphere of the lens, then you, you get start to get bendy, start to get stretchy yeah. and you're, you know, the people will look like we're talking about shooting too high. Go ahead and just try putting people at the edge of your frame mm-hmm. <laughs> with anything lighter than a 35 millimeter. And then, you know, see how flattered your subjects are. <laughs> yeah, it's feel usually better. not. Yeah. It's, it's usually a, a really quick way to, to, to get a bad reputation. And so, yeah, that's, that would be my next recommendation is just, you know, usually you can get what they, they actually have a name for it. The nifty 50, there's actually very extremely high quality, but cheaply made 50 millimeters, uh, that are available for just about any DSLR or SLR. And I imagine there's probably an equivalent for mirrorless cameras. Tyler, I guess you'd probably know more about that. I've also got to, we got to refer a bit to that things have changed a little since our education because cropped sensors are so common now. Like when we were learning on film, film didn't really get cropped, but uh, just keep in mind that a 50, even though, yeah, they are like cheap and and plentiful, um, but then that'll be a equivalent to like an 80 on a, Yep. on a APS-C camera. Uh, now I'm Which, getting a little complicated. Some, something's cropped more than that. I don't know. How, how far into that can we get? Do you have a way of explaining this in like two sentences? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> Google it. Uh, let's, just, let's just say that, okay, so like if you're using a full, or a, 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 a full frame camera, then a 50 millimeter is, is what we're suggesting. If you're using an APS camera, which is a, called you know, otherwise known as a crop sensor, DSLR, then you would use uh, a 35 millimeter would get to about that same focal length or uh, expectation. And if you're using a uh, micro four thirds mirrorless camera, then you'd want to use a 25 millimeter to get to that same point. Yeah. And um, just that's the, that's the simplest way that I can. That's perfect. No, that's, that's good. And I think this is something people got to do a bit of research on. It's kind of, if you don't know it, it can be confusing at first, but once you get it, it's super simple. So. Cool. Okay. Next man, this is going to be like a whole, we should charge for this. Uh, this episode is like a masterclass basically. Am am I getting paid for this? Uh, well, it depends how many people send in their checks for a hundred dollars after the episode's over, (laughs) but yeah, we're giving, we're giving the farm away here. Okay. Uh, next up, make your horizon line straight. This, you don't always have to do this, but like, man, when people get started at photography, they go crazy. (laughs) Yeah. You kind of do people at the beginning, will just make every photo t- like totally randomly tilted. You see this on stock websites a lot where each photo in a series is tilted slightly in a different direction. Make your horizon straight. Like just 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 do it. Don't ask questions. You'll learn what a Dutch tilt is later and then you can maybe explore doing it for one in a thousand photos that you take. But almost <laughs> all your photos, they need to have a straight horizon line and straight vertical line. Like just make it straight on. Make the line straight. Do you have anything to add to straight that? lines, people? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think that there, there are, um, there are moments where you know, like it, it might just feel more natural 
you know, to capture it, however, whatever, you know, position that you're in, just the moment is more important than anything else. Uh, if you're, if you're into capturing moments, but if you're into like capturing art, God, is that the right way to put <laughs> sure, it? Sure. Yeah. Okay. I mean, just, I would Mr. say that Mr. Like, by default, <laughs> yeah, by default, yeah, I'm special by default. you really should aim to have straight lines Yeah. or to have the, you know, the lines mean something. Yeah. Yeah, because you know lines are going to either draw you in or draw you away from, and so if you're if you're not paying attention to those lines, and how they and how they distort an image, then it can really screw you up. And you know it's not just you know when we say horizon line, a lot of times people automatically assume that we're we're talking about shooting in a landscape outside. Actually, when you're shooting inside of a house, that can actually be so much worse. If you're not paying attention to your lines and your oh, horizon sure. line, because you're working in, in a closer proximity where there's going to be a, a ton of, of convergence of those lines, depending on the way that you're tilting your lens. And it can really get weird and uh, it can, can really chain, make or break the, uh, the professionalism, if you will, of your photos. That. That said, I happen to know quite a few like really outstanding lifestyle photographers that don't give a crap about this and it does not seem to affect their success or the the quality of their photos. Well, it's this is something to explore later in your career basically. Just start off making them straight and then fi- figure it out later. That's yeah. I, you know, that's kind of the way to think about it. I think maybe the most con- like the first exception you'll probably run into is if you're looking up at a building. Then you've got like converging lines, they kind of can't be straight. And I would also say that like this, this means a lot more to somebody like you than it would mean to even somebody like me, even though like I am quite particular about it, but because that you do so much video, because this becomes exponentially more important and more of a distraction in video. Like if your horizon lines aren't straight with video, like your video is screwed flat. Yeah. Yeah. So there you and go. I, I've also got to say, even though it's important to me, I'm bad at it. <laughs> like I, I always struggle to get them lined up. So, yeah. Well, so like maybe I can just give a, a, a quick pointer and this also relates to the, what you were saying about when you shoot a portrait and you want to get head to toe and have the proportions not be totally whack. Right. Mm-hmm. So the, the easy way to think about this is that if you're inside of a, a room, say you're taking architecture um, or interior architecture or even just lifestyle, right. One of the things that you want to consider is if those lines are important to you, then, you know, really the best perspective would be at the center of of the height of, of the space that you're in so if you're if you're mm, say, wait wait, wait. Say, say that again how do you mean you like so it like let's just say that you're shooting a, a wide angle shot of of a room of an interior got it you would want to place your camera like like somewhere in the the middle of between the the floor and the ceiling yes because that is where you're going to get the straightest perspective Totally. I mean, so the challenge would be to do that with, if you're shooting buildings, exteriors as well, like that's kind of what you wish you could do. But of course we can't always take a crane or like shoot from a building across the street to get to the middle. Um, So that's why people will use tilt shift lenses to correct for that. Yeah. So don't, don't go down that road. So like, let's say like they used specialized lenses and cameras to be able to correct for this issue. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Tilt shift is like, yeah, it's, Let's not, it's okay. Next, next, yeah. next topic. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What do you got next? Well, I, I jumped the gun because I was gonna, I was gonna use this, um, as its own topic, but I ended up using it for something else, but it was going to be hold your breath. Yeah. Yeah. You just kind of crammed that in there, didn't you? I did. I just kind of stuffed it in, but like, it's, it's a good rule of thumb. Like I, you know, like I do it a lot. There's like right before I'm about to take a critical shot. Um, yeah. And you know, I think that, that part of the reason that, that I do this so regularly is because, um, I do shoot a lot of film still. And, um, you know, when you're shooting digitally, it's not as important because you can, you know, take multiple shots and have it not cost you a fortune. Yeah. You know, but when you're shooting with film, every shot just tends to count a little bit more because it's, it translates to literal dollars. Right. I tend to hold my breath a lot when I'm about to take the shot and that, you know, it's just a really simple and very effective way to not get a blurry image. Hopefully. Cool. That's a good one. All right. I'll do another uh, quick one. Mm-hmm. Always take more than one photo. Even if you think like, okay, this one's easy. I'll just snap it real quick and move on. Like you look and you see the scene and it's like, oh, this is simple. The exposure is all the same. I've already got my settings correct because I just shot a similar photo over there. I know that I'm in the middle of my subject. Like I got this, I got this dialed. So you just walk up, you take a single photo and you walk away. You get home and autofocus was turned off (laughs) (laughs) or what, or like you're, something, somebody who's blinking. So like, there's always something that you easily can miss in the moment that ruins the shot. And you could have saved it if you took more than one photo. So even if I'm taking an image of a static subject, that is just should be an easy win. Like there's no way to screw this up. I've got this. I'll always take at least two photos and usually like five. I'll just go bang, 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 bang. Cause if it's for a job, I need, I need these photos to turn out. I can't blow it just cause I wasn't I, I, because I was overconfident. And I mean, I have, I've totally ruined photos because I was too confident that like, yes, I, I have this maybe the most common reason as well as autofocus, like autofocus is good now, but it's still not perfect. Uh, especially if the light's a bit lower, it can just be off a little bit, you know, maybe it's focused on their nose instead of their eye. And now you have a blurry photo. So mm-hmm. just take a couple extra photos for each one. Definitely. And so I would also just like to say that this is different. It's a different concept than the concept of spray and pray. Mm-hmm. <laughs> spray and pray refers to like not carefully composing and just clicking <laughs> yeah. the shutter at random, basically like not because you're, you're not just not sure. You're like, I'm just going to capture as many photos and like, and pray that some of them are going to end up being good by the time I'm done. What, what Tyler's referring to here is carefully compose your shot and then don't just take a single shot, take many and don't take too many, but take, you know, take several. And then, you know, this can also be applied to that concept I mentioned earlier about bracketing. So what you might do is, is take a couple just to make sure that you got that thing in focus and it's nice and sharp. Um, and then also take, um, take a few that underexpose and overexpose. It depends on how important the shot is. If you recognize that this is a shot that you do not want to miss, then it's worth taking these few extra seconds to do it. And, you know, when you're using a digital camera, it's free. There's literally no reason not to do it. Yeah. However, (laughs) it's only free in in the capture point. So when you're at the editing point, it's a real consideration. Like if you have too many photos to, to look through in an edit that can really chew up a lot of your time, which is very much not free. 
that's what most of my time is eaten by. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I've talked about this on our other podcast, but that I overshoot too yeah. much. I always have too many photos, but um, the, the, the advice is still valid of take a few extra, but I'll often have hundreds of extras. Well, is- I'll, I'll say this. It's better to overshoot and, and have the, you know, and to nail the, the, the job than to undershoot and miss it. 100%. Yeah. Cameron, this was like solid gold. I really appreciate it. I think this is going to be a great episode. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. So everybody go check out Cameron online. Our salty kitchen.com is an awesome blog that he has for food photography. Yeah. And anybody that enjoyed this show, please go rate it and review it on iTunes. It makes a huge difference. You don't even know, like it's one of those things I've delayed it too much on shows that I love and appreciate and listen to for years. And I, I just kind of assume like, ah, they've got their listeners out there. People already find the show, but you know what? The only way podcasts spread is by like word of mouth, telling people that it's good. And, and rating. I, yeah. And the iTunes reviews, they make a really big difference. So I'd super appreciate it if you'd spend two seconds to, to jump over there and say something nice about the show in iTunes and go say something nice about Cameron on uh, your Instagram or Twitter. What are those? My Twitter is Camrocker and it's C-A-M-R-O-C-K-E-R. And I have two Instagram accounts. One is Cameron, which is K-A-M-M-E-R-U-N. And the other one is Camalog, which is my all film Instagram, which is C-A-M-A-L-O-G. And while you're at it, go uh, dive into the backlog of cameras or whatever podcast. There's lots of good tips in there. Yeah. If you like the the tone of my voice, then you can hear more (laughs) of it. Who doesn't? Thanks, Cameron. (laughs) Thank you.